My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, and inveterate FOMO Sapiens 24 hours, seven days a week. My topic today, how to use words to win. Now, we had an episode of Faux Mondays back along about how to use words how to use language more effectively. And I got a letter from, well, not a letter, an email from a listener, Ciros Futuros from Melbourne, Australia. And he was so kind to write in and say that he enjoyed that episode and that coincidentally he was reading Jonah Berger's new book called Magic Words. And he wanted me to know about it because it is very much a FOMO sapiens topic. It's about persuasive language. And he was expecting me to announce that we're going to be talking to Jonah Berger that very Thursday. And I got to tell you, I was like, wow, I have not heard of this guy. But then I guess I had heard of him because when I looked him up, Jonah Berger, I realized I had seen his stuff and I liked his stuff and that he's a smart, smart guy and a good guy. And so I just cold called Jonah. I said, hey, Jonah, would you like to come on the show? And came right back and said, yes, thanks, Jonah. And so I had the opportunity to interview him. And if you watch the TikTok and the and the reel of this one on Instagram, you'll see I'm at my parents' house in Maine. It's very pretty. So I'm on this like porch. So it's very chill. We had a great convo. He's so smart. His book is great. Uh, as I said, the book is called Magic Words. And Jonah, he's just a all around impressive human being. He is a Wharton School professor and internationally best-selling author of this new book, Magic Words, as well as a couple of other books called Contagious, Invisible Influence, and The Catalyst. He is a world-renowned expert on natural language processing, change, word of mouth, influence, consumer behavior, and why things catch on. That's pretty cool. He has published more than 80 articles in top-tier academic journals, teaches one of the world's most popular online courses, and very sort of widespread outlets like the New York Times and HBR often cover his work. He has keynoted hundreds of major conferences and events like South by Southwest and the Cannes Lions. He does it all. He advises early stage companies and consults for lots of companies like Apple and Google and Nike and many others. So that is the, <laughs> it's a pretty impressive guest. And you're going to learn a lot. We're going to talk about how choosing the words you choose can have surprising advantages in all kinds of situations, and we'll get specific on that. We're going to talk about specific tools you can use to project confidence or to use people's desire for belonging to get them to shift their behavior, even with a kid, by the way, not just in business, in life. And we're going to get lots of ideas in marketing, negotiations, and just basically managing your life more effectively by using language. So it's going to be good. Now, small ask of the week. Let me see if I can use some of Jonah's <laughs> some little tricks on you guys. So if you want to be a learner and a belonger, check out my Substack. You can be a subscriber 
by going to patrickjmcginnis.substack.com. That's patrickjmcginnis.substack.com. It is the best Substack in the universe. If you do not read it, your life will be gray and cold. Okay. <laughs> Some of Jonah's, well, I'm not sure Jonah would agree that I used his stuff well, but you'll see. All right. And now onto the interview. As you know, I'd like to start every interview by asking the same question. And the question is this, what's a formative decision you've had to make to get to where you are today? Uh, a few a few years ago, I had to uh, figure out what job to take um, uh, to be a professor, and I had a choice between uh, HBS, Chicago, and Wharton. Um, all of them are wonderful places. Um, I ended up picking Wharton, and it was certainly a, a, a big decision in my life. Oh, yeah. How did you decide that? Because, you know, I went to HBS, so, you know, uh -huh. I'm... I clearly have a, a dog in this in this race or a horse in this race, but you know, there's um, there's some research on something called the compromise effect, which shows that when we have multiple options, we often tend to pick things in the middle. In some sense, they feel a little safer, right? So, do I want the big, big, you know, biggest, most expensive thing? Do I want the cheapest, least expensive thing? Or do I want something in in the middle? And so, uh, like uh, Goldilocks and Three Bears, we tend to we tend to stick the thing in the middle. Um, uh, and that was a little bit uh, like this for me. So, um, uh, you know, HBS is a very good school known for very being outwardly focused. Um, uh, Chicago is a very good school known for being very research focused. And Wharton is a mix of the two. It's, um, uh, you know, not as solely research as Chicago and um, not as solely teaching and, and practitioner sort of HBSs. And so it was a mix of those two things. So I went with the compromise option. That sounds good. Well, it seems like things are going pretty well for you. So the reason that I wanted to have you on today, we had a listener, Spiros out of Australia, who wrote in uh, recently about this book and I started researching you and I had seen you around, but you know, I was like, we got to get this guy on the show because you have a book out magic words, which is all about words. And I've been thinking about words a lot because you know what I've been doing? I've been playing with chat GPT. Yeah. And it's all about the prompt. Right. And so it's like formulating the right questions, thinking about words, convincing this bot <laughs> <laughs> that you have an interesting question. It's, it's going to be the future to some degree. So we're going to talk about that a bit today, but I want to start just kind of high level with what, you know, what inspired you to write this book and how is it different from your previous books? Yeah, I'll say a couple things. So, you know, first of all, everything we do, basically everything we do involves language in, in one way or another, whether we're uh, emailing colleagues, whether we're pitching clients, whether we're talking to spouses and partners, even our own private thoughts rely on, on language. But while we spend a lot of time thinking about what we want to talk about, uh, if we're getting up and making a presentation, the, the topic of the presentation, the main ideas we want to communicate, we often think a lot less about the specific words that we use to communicate those ideas. Whether we're writing an email, putting together a pitch deck, you know, or speaking, we think a lot about the ideas, not the words. And, and unfortunately, that's a mistake because it turns out that subtle shifts in the language you use can have a big uh, effect on our own impact. Um, some very nice research, for example, shows that we add a certain word to a request and it increases the, the likelihood that other people say yes by around 50%. Or something as simple as rather than saying, you know, I like a certain thing, saying I recommend that things makes others about a third more likely to take our suggestion. And, and even the language we leave behind, you know, everything from the language we might write to colleagues over email to the language we might write in a loan application. Uh, companies and organizations can use the language we leave behind to provide insight into who we are and what we might do in, in the future. And so there's a lot of exciting work going on in this space. And the question I really wondered is kind of, well, what are these magic words and, and how by understanding understanding these words, can we all increase our impact? I'm curious, why do you think that, what is the root cause of this, 
emphasis on the ideas over the language. Because I think back to, you know, when you start, you know, school in the United States, it's like half of your day is spent just memorizing words. We take the SAT. It's, it, I remember having these books of vocab. So it's not that we just ignore words, obviously, like as kids, we're trying to accumulate as many words as possible. But you're right. Like, interestingly, we don't think about these things as we get moving because it's all the, the ideas are where all the, the heat is, where all the energy is, right? What's going on there? Like, what is, what's the cause of that? Yeah. I mean, well, think about it. You know, uh, imagine you're asked to give a presentation at work about a project you've been working on. Imagine you're pitching a client on a, on a service that you're offering, or imagine you're having a tough conversation with a, a friend or a or spouse. A as we think about all those examples, you know, often we think about what are we going to say, right? What do I want to get across? What are the main ideas I want to communicate? We don't think about which words do I want to use to, to say that, right? Particularly in, in spoken conversations, you and I are speaking to one another right now. I, unless we script out everything we're going to say ahead of time, it's really hard to know exactly what words we're going to use. And even in written communication, right? When we have more time to construct and refine what to say, usually we start by focusing on that outline, right? The main ideas we want to communicate, and then we fill in the words. We don't spend as much time unless we have a lot of time thinking about the specific words to use. Are there some people who just inherently naturally do this? So incorporate this thinking into what they do, or is it you know, like, and who give us an example of somebody who you think does that well? You know, I, it's been really interesting thinking about this because I, I talk to some people and they go, oh, you know, you're writing a book on language. You know, I, I have this friend that's such a great speaker. You know, every time they talk, everybody listens. Or, you know, oh, someone will say, man, I wish I was a better writer. You know, I know so-and-so and they're an amazing writer. Um, and every time they write something, I, I just want to read what they, what they have to say. I think we have this intuition that, you know, being a good speaker, being a good writer is something that you're born with. Mm. You either have it or, or you don't. But what I, I found is so interesting is, you know, if we understand the science, why language works, how language works, we can all become more effective writers and speakers. And, and, you know, I think we don't think of ourselves as writers and speakers because that's not what we do, right? We don't get up on a stage, most of us, and talk to tens of thousands of people. We don't write books or plays or movies, but we're all writers. I mean, we're constantly writing emails and presentations and content, and we're all speakers. You know, whether we get up on stage or not, we are speaking in a meeting, we are speaking at the dinner table, we are talking on the phone. And so by understanding how language works, whether or not this is our full-time job or just something we do as part of our job, we can all do it better. All right, so let's get into it. You have this concept of magic words. So let's I, I, let's define that, and what is that really? What are you pointing to when you when you use that expression? Yeah, well, so I, there are six types uh, of language that I talk about in in the book, and I, I put them in a framework um, uh, called uh, the Speak framework to help folks remember it. The the S is the language of similarity and difference. The mm -hmm. P is the language of posing questions. The E is the language of emotion. The A is the language of agency and identity. The first C is the language of confidence, and the second C is the language of concreteness. And if you're sitting they're going, well, wait a second. Speak doesn't end with two C's. It ends, it ends with a K. You're exactly right. It does end with a K. I couldn't come up with a better way to stuff these six <laughs> things into a framework, so we're stuck with speak with uh, two C's. Um, but I'll give you an example of, of one, uh, one example of, of magic words to help us think about it. And it, it comes from the agency and identity chapter, the A in, in that word, speak. Um, and so a number of years ago, some researchers were interested in, in how we get people to do something, how we get them to say yes, right? We're often asking people for help. We're often asking maybe for a nonprofit to do things like vote or take a certain action. Sometimes people do it. Sometimes they don't. How could we, as requesters, get people to be more likely to, to help us out? 
Okay, so they, they go into a local elementary school, a group of four and five-year-old kids, and they ask the kids for help cleaning up the classroom. It's a mess, right? So there are books on the floor, there are crayons everywhere. It's, it's a mess. For some kids, they say, hey, can you help clean up? And for other kids, they take a slightly different approach. They say, hey, can you be a helper? Now, the difference between help and helper is infinitesimally small, right? It's a couple of letters. Yet that couple of letters leads to a 30% increase in people's willingness to help. And it's not just kids in classrooms, right? We might wonder, oh, but do adults do this in real consequential decisions? Well, another study more recently looked at voting. They asked people to vote. And for some people, they sent them a note saying, hey, will you go vote? For others, they sent them a note saying, hey, will you be a voter? Now, again, the difference between vote and voter is quite small. In this case, it's only one letter. Yet asking people to be a voter rather than vote led to about a 15% increase in people's likelihood of turning out at the polls. And so what gives, right? Why is, why is voter more effective than vote or helper more effective than help? And it turns out what it's all about is the difference between actions and identities. So we all know that we should do things that people ask us to do, right? We should help, we should vote, we, do all, we should do all these things. But we're busy. We don't always have time to do them. What we care more about, though, than actions are identities, right? We care a lot about seeming smart and competent and knowledgeable. And so when actions are opportunities for us to claim desired identities, well, we're much more likely to take those actions, right? Helping, sure, I know I should, but if helping is an opportunity to be a helper, well, now I'm more likely to do it. Similarly, if voting, uh, voting is fine, but if it's an opportunity to be a voter, a desirable identity that I know I want to have, I'm more likely to do it. And so by turning actions into identities, we can make people more likely to take those actions in the first place. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages, but I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. Oh, that's very smart. I like this. This is what it makes me think of. And I, I hate to do this because, you know, it's so predictable, but there's a FOMO element to this. You think about it. It's because you're creating, you're creating a group of people who are taking part in an activity. You know, everybody's doing something together. Is that herd behavior? Or at least you're positing that there's a herd behavior. Here's a thing that people are doing. Do you want to be part of it or not? And then the person has to make a decision. Well, of course I want to be a helper because, you know, being a helper is, is what good people do. So there is this interest. That's very, I mean, it's just a really easy way for me to remember it because of course I think about everything in terms of FOMO. So <laughs> it's just my lazy way of doing things, but, but that, so, so you can, you can really use that. I mean, not just with five-year-olds, but really with anybody 
in terms of thinking about how you you're putting them. What is your place in this world? Right. It's like, what, what, what team do you want to be on? Yes. I, I like that. I like that phrase. What team do you want to be on a lot? You know, I think we often think about language or words as ways to sort of communicate identity, but they, mm. uh, sorry, communicate information, but they also communicate what it means to do something right. Take, take something as simple as running. So imagine I tell you about two people. One is a, one runs. I have a friend who runs uh, and another who is a runner. If you had to guess, which of those people runs more often? The one who runs or who is a runner? Definitely is a runner. Right, because it sounds like a, a consistent part of who they are. It's not just something they do once in a while. It's part of their identity, right? It's more likely to persist. And so, you know, if we say, okay, well, I'm a hardworking person. Okay, I'm hardworking. I'm a hard worker. That sounds more persistent. I'm creative. I make content. Okay, I'm a creator. Well, that sounds like a full-time job, right? And so by shifting from kind of actions or adjectives into identities, it seems much more permanent and it can motivate ourselves as, as as well as others, right? If I want to run more often, if I start describing myself as a runner, well, man, I really got to go out there and do it. Otherwise, I can't, I can't call myself that. And so by shifting the way we talk to both ourselves and to others, we can change what it means to engage in a particular action and how likely we and, and others are to do that action. Wow. I, I don't know, Jonah, have you heard of this book, Life is in the Transitions by Bruce Feiler? I don't know if I have. You should check it out. It was a really okay. successful book uh, that came out during the pandemic, and Bruce is fantastic. But one of the things he talks about, and we've had we talked about this with a bunch of guests, but the fact that everybody has their own personal narrative that runs in their life, and that yes. sort of orders their life. And when you lose the narrative, when you lose the story because you lose your job or you break up your spouse or whatever that thing is, when that story becomes untenable, we have to retell ourselves the story. And what I hear and what you're saying is like, if you can get people to integrate what you are trying to convince them to do into their own personal narrative, it's gonna be a heck of a lot easier to move them off of the block or whatever. Yeah, I mean, think about it, right? If, if I'm sitting go there going, okay, do I wanna vote or do I wanna help? That's just a one-off thing. Mm. But if I'm sitting there going, who am I? What do people like me, that, that identity, tend to do? Well, if this is a thing that people like me tend to do, well, I'm much more likely to do it because it's not just voting, right? Oh, yeah. it's, it's an opportunity to be who I want to be or, in some cases, avoid who I don't want to be, right? Research finds in the opposite direction, you know, cheating on a test is bad. Being labeled a cheater would be even worse. And so when cheating on a test in, in an experiment they find, you know, would make people a cheater, now they're less likely to do it. There's that, that old campaign, uh, you know, it doesn't say don't litter, it's a don't be a litter bug. Why? Mm. Well, hold on, littering, yeah, okay, I shouldn't litter, but being a litter bug, hold on, I don't want to be labeled this negative identity, and so now I'm less likely to do this, this thing. And so it's really about making it a more um, stable part of who people are and how they see themselves rather than just something that's you know here today and gone tomorrow. Is there a brand that you sort of think of that does this particularly well that we can sort of point to and see how they're using this? Yeah, you know, I, I think um, uh, there's some things in the book that I think are very focused on brands and what brands can do well. So, mm -hmm. you know, I've analyzed uh, the content of uh, various brands' social media pages um, and helped them figure out how to optimize content using particular words um, that increase engagement. In this case, I think it's less uh, of something brands would do and more something people would do mm. uh, on sort of in their in their own personal lives as a, as a leader, as a manager, even as a, an employee or a parent. It's a, a simple trick we can use to sort of encourage others to, to go in the right direction. All right. So let's move on to the next one on my list because this is the one that I really love because I think it's, it is something that MBA students do really well which is convey confidence. Like you yeah. throw an MBA and they're like certain of everything, which I remember when I, when I started studying 
because I'm, I was, I, you know, I just wasn't raised that way. I mean, I'm from, you know, a small town in Maine, right? Everything is, there's no confidence conveying happening. <laughs> but then I walked into a room with people who are hundred percent sure of themselves. And I remember thinking, yeah. this is a superpower. Yeah. Talk about conveying confidence and how this plays into the system. Yeah. So, so I want to talk, I want to talk about confidence and to do that, I, I want to use a particular example. So mm-hmm. is it okay if I tell a little bit of a story? A hundred percent. Great. So, you know, I, I want to focus on a political figure, not because I want to get into politics. Everyone's entitled to believe whatever they want, but because I, I think it's a useful example. Um, so, so take Donald Trump. Uh, mm-hmm. And whether you like Donald Trump or you hate Donald Trump, you're entitled to your opinion. You can't deny he's done a great job uh, of motivating his audience to follow him. He's done a great job of selling his ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Getting people to, to, to be on board. If you like those ideas, fantastic. If you hate those ideas, you're probably angry that he's been able to do that. But more importantly is why, right? What does he do? that gets people to, to go along. And so if you look at one of his speeches, for example, one of the speeches he made when he first announced his original presidential run, he said something like, you know, um, America doesn't have victories anymore. You know, um, um, we used to have victories. We don't have them anymore. If I'm elected, I'll build a great wall and I'll build it quickly and cheaply. Um, you know, if I'm elected, we'll be China all the time. I beat trade deals in China all, all the time. And different people had different opinions about this speech. Some liked it, some didn't like it. The people who didn't like it said it was overly simplistic. And, and bluster. And yet a year later, he's elected president. And so even if you, you hate Trump, which you're entitled to, um, or you like him, which is fine also, what is he doing right? And if you look closer, he's doing something really interesting. And he's doing something that uh, great sales leaders uh, do really well. He's doing something that uh, startup founders do really well. He's doing something, as you noted, some MBA students do really well. Gurus do really well. He's speaking with a great deal of confidence. And what do I mean by that? He's using language in a way that suggests that everything he's saying is right. And it's not just right. He is certain that it's right, right? It's not just, oh, America doesn't have as many victories as it used to have. America doesn't have victories anymore. He talks in absolutes, right? There's black, there's white, there's right, there's wrong. um, And it conveys a great deal of certainty. And not surprisingly, certainty can be quite persuasive, right? Certainty or confidence can be quite persuasive. There's some really nice research that shows when, when choosing financial advisors, people are more likely to pick an advisor that uses more certain or confident language. Why? Because it seems like what they're saying is more likely to be right, right? Even though that person might be overconfident or is no more likely to be accurate, they pick it because it seems like they're, they're confident. As you said, though, contrast that with most of us, right? I'll, I'll pick on myself for a moment. You know, I do lots of consulting projects. Someone will bring me in. They'll say, what do you think of this strategy? And I'll say something like, oh, yeah, that, that, that might work. Or I think that's a decent idea. Or, yeah, you know, that, that's interesting. That, that could happen, right? And, and what I'm doing is I'm using a lot of what are called hedges. Yeah. Uh, might could, possibly, I think. Uh, And while we tend to use them as crutches, right, because we're not 100% sure, we don't want to seem overconfident, um, unfortunately, hedges often undermine our impact. They make us seem like we're less confident in what we're saying, and as a result, they make other people less likely to listen. And so we need to understand the language of confidence and, more importantly, how how to apply it. So here's the cognitive dissonance, and I know this is like, I'm sure you've thought a lot about this. It's sort of like, okay, great, you're right. Trump is very effective. And what's interesting, of course, is when you look at a number of the things that he says, it's pretty obvious that they're not factual. Like, it's not that they're bald-faced lies, but when you say, for example, I'm not saying he says, but he says, well, America never wins anymore. Well, you know, I could give you plenty of examples that are wins. And so those declaratives, when we make them, when when we're highly charismatic and we have a platform and stuff, then obviously the implications of 
saying things that are factually unverifiable is different than if you're a sort of uh, a mid-level employee in a company and you're dealing with your boss. And that's you're nodding. So we agree with that. Yeah. How do you thread the needle around using this certainty in a in an effective way and not being completely uncredible to all yes. the people around you? Yes. Yeah. And so first of all, let's be careful. I'm not saying that you should always be no, for sure. What I want us to realize, first of all, is that are we speaking with certainty or not? Mm-hmm. Right? I think many of us go, oh my God, so-and-so is so charismatic. How do they do it? I'll tell you how they do it. They speak with certainty, right? Now, you can sit there and go, hold on, right? I don't want to speak with certainty in this situation because I'm not so certain. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not sure it's going to work out this particular way. And so I don't want to seem overconfident. Or you can say, this is a situation in which I do want to communicate certainty, but without understanding what communicates certainty, what types of language, hedges, for example, uh, make us seem less certain, fillers, um, I talk about words like definites, there are a bunch of things in this chapter, types of language I talk about, Um, but without knowing, we can't communicate the right way. So so first, I think we need to understand what certainty is. But but second, as you said, we need to leverage it in in the correct way, right? Uh, Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm not sure something will work. I think something's a great strategy, but I'm not sure if it's going to work. And I'm not sure if it's going to work because I can think of some problems with that strategy. Notice there are a couple ways to say that. I can say, I'm not sure that's going to work. It might work. Or I can say something like, I think this is a great strategy. But to make this strategy work, we need to make sure these three things happen. And notice the difference there. I'm sounding quite confident. And I'm not sharing anything other than my opinions. And I'm indicating where the uncertainty is. We need to make sure these three things will happen to make the strategy work. But I'm, in some sense, I'm owning the uncertainty there, right? I'm being very clear about what is known and what is unknown and what we need to do to achieve the outcome I think we should achieve. Because when I just say that strategy might work, I'm actually not only indicating uncertainty, I'm being unclear. Because I have some strong opinions. I think it's a great strategy. I'm not sure it's going to work because of these three things. But if we make these three things work, I'm pretty sure it will work. Well, now I sound a lot more confident. And so owning that uncertainty and being clear where it is and calling it out can both indicate more confidence, increase persuasion, but also not seem overconfident. FOMO. FOMO. I, I just, I was thinking as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, like McKinsey would never say, you know, sort of like in their deck at the end, we're not sure this will work. They will say, this will work. Here are the three considerations. And yes. that's why people pay millions of dollars to McKinsey. But they're being very clear, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying, if we do these three things, this will happen. Now, I can't guarantee these three things will happen. That's what we got to work on. But I'm calling out the uncertainty. I'm not just being generally uncertain. I'm calling it out. And, and also notice the difference between it seems versus it seems to me. Or, you know, this might be true versus I think this might be true. When we use personal pronouns, we take ownership of the situation. Mm. We make it clear that, hey, you know, I, I like this or I think this. There may be some uncertainty, but I'm owning that uncertainty. And doing that ownership makes us seem more certain and, and makes us more persuasive as a result. Yeah, and for everybody who's listening, I'm just taking notes right now myself. It's like these are things that you can you should I mean you can integrate these into your daily conversations in a pretty you know, sort of not high friction way. And you can start to see how they play out. Like, I, I mean, just this is like a mental shift, right? This is an aha moment where you just start to think about how am I communicating and just having a couple of these written down on a piece of paper on your desk yeah. and integrating them, you're going to start to see, I would imagine, high, a much more effectiveness than before. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I the talk about sticky notes on your desk. I do exactly that, right? I have a couple of reminders of sort of things I'm working on. I also find that this is much easier to see in written communication than it is in spoken communication. And so if, if you know, you have a job where much of your, your impact is about speaking effectively, you're, you know, a salesperson, you're making speeches, um, it's painful, but recording one of these things, transcribing it and reading it through is really useful. Wow. Because it, it's really easy to think, you know, we don't use things like fillers in writing. When we're writing an email to someone, we don't say, um, uh, you know, those type of things because we get rid of them. When we're speaking, we often use a lot of fillers because we're not sure we want to say and we want to pause the conversation while we take some time to think. But those fillers make us seem uncertain and make us less persuasive. And so by recording those conversations, by transcribing them, by looking and seeing all the ums and uhs and fillers, we can take a step back and go, wait a second, maybe I'm not communicating the way I want to communicate. What can I do to improve it? Yeah, you know the fillers are in written language are em- emoticons and lol. <laughs> I mean, how many times? I, I you know I was like I texted my my mom who's you know in her seventies and it's lol and I'm just sort of thinking, mom, like, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, <it's> kind of, <laughs> so don't do that either. <laughs> yes. Um, now I have a couple more questions for you, and these are we're going into the away from into a little more esoteric, but I think very valuable. The first is yep. this. So. FOMO Sapiens listeners are all over the world. We've got people in every corner of the planet. And I'm curious, as you think about your work in a global context, is it always the same? Because one thing that, what, that I particularly notice in, in America is that we are trained from a young age to do a lot of these things. Because yeah. think about it. We do show and tell at school. We, we take an item into school every day and we tell everybody how amazing this book about Mickey Mouse is. Right. So we are sort of trained to some of these things. In other cultures, some of these things are considered to be completely anathema to what is considered good behavior. So how have you encountered, as your book has traveled the world, how has it been sort of reacted to? You know, there are certainly different norms in different cultures. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say Americans are better or worse at this. Um, And I would say that the psychology is very much the same. So the words, for example, that make us seem certain or uncertain are the same across cultures. The words Mm -hmm. might or probably always indicates uncertainty, for example. But different cultures have different ways uh, of communicating. I was um, doing something recently where somebody from Germany um, was uh, was talking and they were interacting with some folks in the United States. And they said, you know, it was, it was weird. I was asking someone for an interview and I thought they said yes based on the language they used. But then, then I was confused because I said, okay, let's schedule it. And, and then what they really meant was no. But, but they had said it in a way that I was confused because they were so sort of polite and indirect about it that um, I, didn't, I didn't actually know what they, they were saying. And so I think there are cultural differences in, for example, how certain we want it to seem, mm. how desirable it is to seem certain, even within cultures, right? Think about you know, if you're the boss or, you know, uh, high up in a company versus if you're, you know, a middle manager, you just joined an organization, how certain you want your language to be varies. It's not just about the United States versus a different country. It's about sort of the role you're in and the situation that you're in. And so to me, you know, language is a tool. Um, this book is a toolkit book. There are lots of different tools you can pull out of your toolkit, but it's about understanding when and how to use those tools effectively. All right. Context matters. And, and finally, so I mentioned ChatGPT earlier. I, you know, it's I, you can't have a conversation today without talking about generative AI. It's not allowed. The metaverse is dead. It's all about it. And so the question I have for you is, you know, I'm sure you've played around with it, and it's it's fascinating because it's all language based, right? And so yes. you know, it's textual. And I always I read the the syntax, and I'm just fascinated when you read GPT. 
how is it using language? Is it using language convincingly? How do you kind of look at it in your framework of magic words? You know, I think for the moment, what it's it's doing is very impressive. But but what it's doing is different than I think what some of us think it's doing. So it's doing a really good job of producing language effectively. Uh, so it's doing a really good job of producing language that we don't think a machine produces, right? We ask it a question, it asks like answers like a person does. That's really impressive. I'm not sure yet that it's optimized for the most impactful language, right? I think right now it's optimized for answering questions and doing it well. Is it going to write the best sales pitch? I don't know. You know, and so I think we'll see as time goes on, it'll get better at that, but I don't think it's there at the moment. All right. So if you want to find out more about Jonah's work, you can go to jonahberger.com. The book, which you've been enjoying the ideas, but go pick it up because I think this is, you know, this is just, I've I've really enjoyed reading it. And I thought I was pretty good at convincing language, but I've been picking up some tips. The book is called Magic Words, What to Say to Get Your Way. Jonah Berger, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstro. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com.